Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as your word goes forth, it does accomplish that which you have ordained it to do and you've purposed for it. So do that in our hearts. May your spirit speak to us. May you convince us. May you convict us. And God, may you lead us to be your people who walk in godliness and faithfulness, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Those of you who have been here in in the time since I've come and noticed how I try to arrange my sermon and try to speak it, I like to have my uh, my notebook in front of me as I preach, and I haven't had really a a stand that was suitable. And so I'm thankful I'm going to celebrate Bob Fabie this morning. He got me a, this this actually will rise up about here. He got this on eBay. It was actually Kareem uh, (laughs) Abdul-Jabbar's stand. But this thing is great, so I can now uh, preach my sermon without uh, having it be precariously uh, uh, placed here on the edge of the uh, platform. Uh, It's kind of interesting. Father Peter and I go through a process of uh, discerning who's going to preach when, and we are sensitive to each other's schedule and also interests and expertise and things of that nature. I'm scheduled to preach about once a month, and so that's my schedule on things. We, uh, in our planning, uh, for instance, we, uh, when someone's on vacation, we don't require them to preach the Sunday they get back because what type of a vacation is that if you've had to prepare a sermon all the time you've been gone? And so that's part of our planning. But when it comes to today, I, I'm really kind of confused. I mean, Father Peter last week, he preached on the love of God, which is so easy and wonderful to preach on, and he gives me the doctrine of election. <laughs> And I'm there, wow, I need to talk to Father Peter about that a little bit. And it's kind of interesting when you think about that, because here you have the love of God immediately followed by the doctrine of election. It tells you that election is deeply woven into the love of God and comes because of the love of God. So the connection between those two doctrines should not be dismissed. The doctrine of election is is a biblical doctrine, and it should be taught and preached on in our churches If you go to major portions of Scripture, you find there's a whole lot in Scripture about election. You can't read Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 14 without realizing, wow, election and predestination is so critical there. 1 Peter chapter 1 is the same. Romans 8, 28, which Peter preached on a couple weeks ago uh, about God's uh, love and all things will work together for good, is followed by a very strong statement on election. And the largest portion of Scripture that's devoted to this topic is the passage we're entering today, Romans 9 through 11. And it is a contested doctrine. It is a contested teaching of Scripture. All kinds of questions arise and debates over these questions. How can humans be held accountable if God chose to save the elect before the foundations of the world, before those humans even existed? Is God just and fair to save some and damn others apart from their own choice? Did he just pass over the damned or did he actively elect them to be reprobate? Was God's election based upon his foreknowledge of who would, be, who would obey his call to salvation? That's sort of an Arminian question there. And most personally to every one of us is how can I know and how can you know if we are one of the elect? Throughout the centuries, as this debate has gone back and forth, you have Augustine and Pelagius in the early church, you have medieval scholars, you have Luther and Erasmus, you have Calvin and Arminius, you have all these people who've argued this. Uh, I love the uh, 
Wesley Whitfield uh, debate among them all, uh, two positions have essentially emerged, and that is Calvinism and Arminianism. And you'll be delighted to know that I'm not going to give you a full exposition of Calvinism and Arminianism in my sermon this morning. I'm not sure how long that would take. Uh, most of you know that Calvinists have defined their doctrine, organized their doctrine in an acrostic of a flower called the tulip. You have total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, uh, excuse me, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, T-U-L-I-P. And those uh, five doctrines are responses basically to Arminian remonstrance, which they wrote uh, up actually before this was developed. And so you have that uh, position. And what Calvinists say, and what some people like me do, I'm not a Calvinist, uh, we cherry pick and we try to cherry pick among those doctrines and say, I like this one, I don't like that one, especially how it's defined by the Calvinists. And they say, no, 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 no. It's either all of it or none of it, you know, because it's this integrated system. And so I sort of resist that a little bit. Some of you uh, may not realize that Arminians also have their flower. It's a daisy. And it's not an acrostic, it's actually an illustration. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that just minimizes uh, their, their, the intricacy of their system, and I'll, I'll not go any further there. You'll also be delighted to know that I'm not going to give you a complete exposition on the doctrine of election. And uh, I would commend to you your attention to our Book of Common Prayer, our 2019 Book of Common Prayer. It's not in our pews. Uh, hopefully some of you have it at home. And uh, you go to the back, in the back of our Book of Common Prayer, there is a, uh, found, a set of foundational documents, some foundational uh, truths that we follow. And you'll find there the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. But also in the midst of that, you're also going to find the 39 Articles of Religion, which back in the 1600s, uh, 1500s, when our church was being formed, uh, Thomas Cramer, among others, and Queen Elizabeth with her Elizabethan settlement, defined 39 Articles of Religion that were a response. It's very strongly a reformational document, and Article 17 relates specifically to the doctrine of predestination and election. So you might want to look there sometime. I'm going to read you the first of three paragraphs just so you can hear the language of it so you get a sense of what our church believes, what our denomination believes. Uh, relate, and we are the third largest denomination in the world, if you weren't aware of that. Uh, not so much in the United States, but Africa and Asia, uh, the Anglican world is, is very large. So let me give you a, a sense of this statement. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God whereby... Before the foundations of the world were laid, he has constantly decreed by the, his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he has chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. God is predestined before the foundation of the world to save people in Jesus Christ. Wherefore, they which, have endued, have been, which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God, be called according to his God's good purpose by his Spirit, working in due season, when we actually are in the world. They through grace obey the calling. They be justified freely. They be made the sons of God by adoption. They be made like the image of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works, and at length, by God's mercy, they attained 
to everlasting felicity or happiness in eternity. And so it's a wonderful statement. And one of the things that's wonderful about this statement is that purposely, I think Elizabeth was a, she was a politique. She was someone who tried to bring people together. And I think Anglicans and Calvinists uh, can find their space in the Anglican world. And among us, there are, uh, of, as clergy and leaders, uh, there's people who fit on the whole continuum uh, of those two positions. And so realize it's a relatively safe place in some ways. Whenever I consider the doctrine of election and want to preach on it, I have a certain degree of angst whenever I do that. There are several reasons for this. The first reason, it's such a, uh, to me, a difficult subject and a mysterious subject. It's a subject that has a certain large degree of mystery in it, especially when you try to reconcile all the truths that are present in Scripture. And I think that's one of the reasons why Paul, as he ended this whole discourse on election in Romans 9 through 11, he ends with this expression in Romans 11:33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. And I almost feel like between the lines, Paul is saying, you know what, I've written all this stuff about election, and I've gone so far that, you know what, I'm in a, in a sphere where I can't go any further. I'm just going to declare praise to God and say, you know what, I don't understand, and it's just inscrutable. And so he leaves it off and just le- leaves a place of mystery, which I think is a wise place. So my first angst, angst is... Uh, that is difficult. My second angst is I had this strong proclivity in my personality to try to mediate, to try to bring together, to try to synthesize truths. And without taking sides, I try to gather it. And what happens most of the time is the people on the sides shoot me <laughs> because I try, I try to find a middle position. And that's pretty much a, a reality of our culture that we live in right now, if you weren't aware of that. Uh, and so that's my bent and thirdly, I have so many questions that aren't answered in Scripture and that sometimes I don't feel like uh, scholars answer very well that I just have to just say, you know what, I don't know. And that's a good place to be, I think. I do have some ideas and thoughts that help me navigate Romans 9 through 11 as we approach that text, this specific text about ele- election. One of the things I want you to realize as you read through Romans 9 through 11, I don't think the main idea that Paul is trying to address in this text is personal individual salvation. He's not so much talking about how we as individuals are saved and that we are indiv- as individuals are elect. The larger image of what Paul is trying to do in this text, he's not telling the story of individuals for themselves. He's telling the story of the nation Israel. And he's telling the story of redemption history. So he's not talking about individual salvation so much as he's talking about the whole story of redemption and how it has worked in history. And in the midst of that, he's saying that Israel had a special place in God's redemptive plan of history. And so when he deals with the story of Isaac versus Ishmael and Jacob versus Esau, as well as even the story of Pharaoh, he's not talking so much about their individual salvation as he is talking about their place and their role in God's redemptive history of the world. And so as you deal with that text and look at that, we have the sense from Paul's teaching is that the Jewish people were a chosen race, and through them the Messiah has come, and God has selected through the Jewish people certain people to be the lineage of Jesus. And other ones weren't necessarily of that lineage. 
it gets pretty specific as it weaves its way through the whole Jewish history. And uh, so Pharaoh, Pharaoh says no, and he's, what's his role? I don't think uh, the text is telling us a whole lot about his salvation, which I don't think he was ever a saved individual. It's just telling us that he made possible the exodus because he was so resistant to Moses' uh, pleas to let the people of Israel go. So God's purpose in redemption and election was to save the world through Jesus Christ in the lineage that brought Christ into the world was a chosen one. It was the nation of Israel. And Paul is adamant to emphasize that the Jews have had a special place in redemptive history. That doesn't mean that people in other nations or other ethnicities could not receive salvation. We know that the Jews were responsible to share the, the Torah, the covenant uh, with all the people. And we know even in the story of Israel, there's a multitude of people who came to faith uh, through uh, the, the, the belief in Yahweh God. And even in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, there are three Gentile women who appear there, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, who were different, certainly in the lineage of Christ and individually were people of faith. And so the mission of God was not limited to the Jews, but the mission of God came through the lineage of the Jews. So what we have in Romans 9 through 11 as you approach this text is really Paul laying out the story of redemptive history. It has a lot of implications for individual salvation, but that's not the primary focus of what Paul is doing. Most people's angst when it comes to the doctrine of election is not over how God has worked things out in human history. I don't think there are too many people here who say, it makes me mad to think that God chose the Jewish people and that Messiah came through the Jewish people. If anybody's there, uh, you, you've got a problem with Scripture, but it's like, I don't think there are probably many people here, unless you are Muslim, uh, because they rewrite the story of Scripture and don't see that lineage working out quite that way. It goes more through, through Ishmael. What we have greater difficulty with is when it comes down to individual personal salvation. That's where we struggle. Are we part of the elect, and why has God elected not to save all and, not, and eliminate some from that story? I'll get back to that a little bit later. When you come to Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul has three, three primary concerns that he's trying to address. And let me share them with you. His first concern, and realize that we come to Romans chapter 9, dealing with a whole book that is really focused upon laying out a whole theology for the church, but the, one of the central issues is Jew-Gentile relationships in the church at Rome. How do Jews perceive Gentiles? How do Gentiles perceive Jews? And Paul's burden is that they might receive one another and accept one another and be one in Christ as they are called to be. So he's laying out in Romans 9 through 11 really a foundation for that. Now, one of the concerns that Paul addresses here is somehow people began to perceive that Paul was against his Jewish kinsmen. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, so therefore he favored the Gentiles and not the Jews. And so that accusation was present before him. It was almost a sense that Paul hated the Jewish people. And so when you get to what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5, one of the things he is very adamant to declare is that he is willing to be accursed, separated from Christ for his kinsmen according to the flesh. That's, that's resonant of Moses. Moses, after the, uh, after the, 
the uh, children of Israel made the golden calf, he went to intercede for them. He said, God, cut my name off from the book of life if you do not forgive the people of Israel. And he's interceding so heavily for them. And so Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I love the Jewish people. Paul was of the Jewish people himself. The apostles were of the Jewish people. And so Paul is not declaring a hatred toward the Jews, but a love of the Jews. And he lays that out very adamantly. So when you see Paul's logic, his argument, don't miss or forget his love. He's got a strong argument here about God has set aside Israel. But don't miss the fact, when you look at his logic, that he also has love. He's speaking the truth in love. And that is laid out right at the beginning for us. The second concern that Paul has is that somehow God is unfair to the Jewish people Israel because it appears that he's turned from them to bless the Gentiles. He's turned away from Israel and he's blessing the Gentiles. And somehow the judgment is that God is unfair. And Paul goes down and says, don't miss all the privileges the Jewish people have enjoyed. There's the, the, the uh, covenants and the law and the patriarchs and even the Messiah himself is theirs because he came through their lineage. And so when you think that God is unfair, think of the privilege that the Jewish people enjoyed through their history. And so he says, essentially, when you see God's judgment and you judge it as unjust, don't forget the prior privilege that was part of the Jewish people's story. The third concern is that somehow the word of God has failed. The whole story of redemption is based upon a promise of God, that God would save the world through the seed of Abraham. And that's the foundation to it all. And has that failed in some way because the Jewish people have been cut off? He's promised to bless Israel forever. And yet when you look at the history of Israel, you can find time after time where the Jewish people had wandered away from their covenant and God judged them very critically, and yet he didn't cut them off completely. So when you see the rejection of the Jewish people, don't forget the remnant. Never forget that God has always kept a remnant among his people, a group of people that were always faithful, always there, always continuous, and the lineage of the Jewish people continues on. And Paul would argue that it even goes on to the end, you know, to the eschaton. Because all Israel shall be saved. And we can debate all the text on that in terms of dispensational or anything else, but there is a sense in which the Jewish people will again be grafted back in along with the uh, unnatural branches of the Gentiles. And so what we have Paul doing is addressing several concerns there, and then he gets down to the nitty-gritty of dealing with relationships between Gentiles and Jews. Gentiles have certain proclivities against the Jews, and Jews have certain uh, attitudes and biases against the Gentiles, and it goes back and forth. And Paul wants to lay that to rest. The Gentiles had a tendency to look down upon the Jews because it seems that most of them did not accept Christ. Many of them did, but when you look at the church, look at our church, I'm not sure how many Jewish people we have in our midst, dear, but most of us are Gentiles, as I would presume as I look at that, and that was true, I think, in Rome, as you look there at the church at Rome. And so what has happened in the midst of all this, the Gentiles are beginning to look down upon the Jews. The Jews somehow look at them as being inferior, so they have attitudes toward the Jewish people. 
and they have attitudes toward them and say, why would I, why would I worship with and why would I favor someone who God has rejected and God has turned away from? And the Jewish people have their own history of relationship with Gentiles because they're the chosen people and everybody else. I mean, here you have the little nation of, the, of, of Israel and everybody else is a Gentile, a goyim, uh, someone who's outside, the, the ethnos, the nations, and they're not elect and we are. And that's highly favored status, is it not? And so why would they worship with someone who's a Gentile? And so these attitudes, Paul sort of lays to rest, and he defends two things. One, the special chosenness of the people of Israel. They are God's chosen people, and to them belong the covenants and the law and the patriarchs and the Messiah. So don't dismiss the Jewish people because they have a special chosenness before God. But the other thing that he defends is the special inclusion of the Gentiles into the body of Christ. Jew and Gentile are made one body in Jesus Christ, and he'll develop that even more when he writes the book of Ephesians. Ephesians lays that out so beautifully. And so Paul lays that to rest. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of election, let me offer you some really succinct statements. And uh, here's what you need to know. You can write this down, those of you who are taking notes. It is God who chooses, and not you and me. It is God who chooses and not you and me. Number two, it is God who judges and not you and me. It is God who chooses to show compassion and mercy and grace to whomever he will. And we may object to that in the depth of our individuality and our own pride, but that is the truth of God. It is God who chooses. It is God who judges. It is God who chooses to show mercy to whomever he will. That leaves us with a little bit of warning. Number one is don't presume upon yourself to judge God or to judge God's love and justice and grace. Ask your questions. Have, have angst about those things. You know, wrestle with the doctrine of election. But don't judge God. That's not a good place to be. It's not safe. It's not wise. Secondly, don't presume upon yourself the capacity to determine who God has chosen among his people. Who's in and who's out. Don't presume upon yourself the capacity to judge who's in and who's out. You will likely be surprised who God has chosen. And a lot of people will likely be surprised that you and I were chosen. <laughs> Are there anybody out there that might be surprised that you're in the, in the elect, among the elect? Probably for me. You can be confident in some things, and I offer them to you. All, all of God's choices will be according to his sovereign will and will magnify his love, mercy, and holiness to the glory of his grace. He will never call or choose separated from his nature. And God will always choose according to who he is in his greatness and goodness. God will not choose contrary to his eternal precepts that he's laid out in Scripture. And so there are consistency in God's ethical and moral image of the world. And God will not choose apart from Jesus Christ because election is in Christ. And that concept of in Christ is absolutely critical. And Paul even declares, and some of the early church fathers as well, it's so clear in Ignatius of Antioch, 
that all the Jewish people who were faithful covenant people were in Christ. They're in Christ. All people of all, all saved people of all history are in Christ. And election is in Christ. Read Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to. And every time you come to in him or in whom or in Christ, circle it. And you're going to have just a load of circles <laughs> in, your, in your Bible in Romans chapter 1. God's choice overrules privilege. The Jewish people had privilege, but it, they couldn't presume upon the grace of God. God's choice will overrule our objections. One of the things Paul does in Romans chapter 9 through 11, he comes to a place where he says, there's all these questions. He's raising the questions, obviously, but he's dealing with an audience out there that he's probably heard these questions from. He, he, find, he gets to a point where he just says, who are you? Who are you to offer these questions and to challenge God on this and uh, make determinations that somehow God is not revealed or whatever? And who are you? And God's choice overrules our cultural patterns and prejudices. The Jews and Gentiles both had cultural patterns and prejudices that were not godly. They were cultural, but they were not kingdom. They were kingdom, they were not kingdom perspective, they were cultural biases that they possessed. God should have chosen Esau. Why? Because he was the firstborn. He came out first, right? But God chose Jacob. Why? Because he chose Jacob. <laughs> That's why he did it. He chose. And so we have all these cultural biases that somehow cloud our image of who should be in and who should be out. And all of a sudden, we end up being in the position of God and taking away that role from God. Part of our maturity in Christ is coming to a place where we adopt a kingdom perspective and throw away cultural perspectives as we make our decisions about life and about people and about images, all, all types of uh, categories of things. I grew up in such a provincial world in northern Maine. We were just this little small community, almost a thousand people. We traveled a long distance to Bangor, Maine, a couple times a year to buy clothes, but we went to the city and we came back to our little community. And our sense was that this is the only place to be in the world. This is the best place to be in the world. Why would anybody want to live anybody anywhere else? There's chaos everywhere else. And we live here in the best place in the world. And anybody who came into our community who wasn't one of us, we didn't accept them readily. They were outsiders. We would use that language. That was part of our vocabulary. They're outsiders. And the Canadians who came down to work in the forest of Maine in the pulp industry, they were Canucks, and they were less than us, and they were not uh, of us. And we also had judgments for those who left us. And I'm one of them. <laughs> and so I have a judgment upon myself when I go back to little Island Falls, Maine. And what is that? I've spent my life trying to overcome the biases associated with that provincial understanding of life. Growing as a person, maturing as a person, but especially maturing as a Christian and understanding how our cultural biases color and, and flavor our attitudes towards others. And part of our calling to Christian maturity is to embrace kingdom perspective and throw off our cultural baggage and recognize it for what it is and throw it off. And when it comes to discerning who's in and who's out, we need to use extreme care that we follow kingdom perspectives. 
the Jewish people had every right to presume they had it together because they had all the privilege. But Paul says, not so. Not so. This is worthy of a couple points of application, and let me offer them to you, hopefully not stepping on too many toes. If you have difficulty perceiving how God could have children who belong to a political party other than your own, you have a cultural bias and not a kingdom perspective. If you have difficulty celebrating the the diversity that exists in God's kingdom as is manifested in our congregation this morning in a small microcosm, then you have a cultural bias and not a kingdom perspective. If you have difficulty accepting the marriage between two believers from different ethnic backgrounds, you have an ungodly cultural bias and not a kingdom perspective. I'll let you add to the list. (laughs) But there's more, is there not? There's a whole lot more. Things that we need to recognize that are cultural biases and we can just cast them off because they're not of the kingdom. They're just not. Let me conclude by offering to you just a few thoughts about how can you know and how can I know that we are one of the elect? What are the marks of people who are elect of God? Our uh, 39 articles in that 17th article offers, and this is somewhat of a summary of that, but adding to it a little bit. The first mark, a clear sense of conviction that God is or has has or is calling and wooing and drawing you to salvation? Has God called you? Is God calling you to salvation? Wooing you, drawing? You have a sense that you're being drawn to God. That's number one. Number two, a deep, uh, a responsive obedience to that call through repentance and faith and baptism. You've sensed the call, but you're also responding, yes, I believe, yes, I repent of all my prior views that were ignoble. And I embrace it and I am am baptized into Christ. Number three, a deep awareness that you are a recipient of God's grace in Christ and that you don't stand before God saying, I earned this, I deserve this, but you are aware of the grace of God that has come to you through Christ. A sense of the Holy Spirit's working in your life, that the Holy Spirit is working in you, convincing you of the truth, Convicting you of sin, leading you to a lively faith that is believing and trusting in God and empowering you to live a life of godliness. Do you sense the Holy Spirit's work in your life? That's evidence of election. A desire for holiness and actually making progress in holiness, becoming more like Christ as you aspire to the virtues of Christ. Growth in your love for God, that you are learning to love God more, and as you love God more, you love the world more, and you love people more, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Walking in good works that God has foreordained for us to walk in. Good works do not lead you, uh, earn your salvation, but they are definitely a product of salvation. And if they're not evident in your life, there's concern. And lastly, experiencing, as you understand rightly the doctrine of election, sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort, not dread, when you consider 
the election of God. You're humble, not angry, not anxious. You are eternally grateful for God's mercy shown through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which is our rightful and best posture when we consider a doctrine of this nature. Humility and eternal gratefulness for God's love that has been bestowed toward us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And even in the midst of the whole doctrine of election, in Romans chapter 10, one of the wonderful things, you say, who's elect, who is an elect? Paul says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you sense a drawing within yourself to call upon the name of the Lord, do so. It's evidence of your election. Call upon him. Let's pray. Father, we offer ourselves to you and ask ask you to minister your grace to us. Thank you for the truth of Scripture. Some of it's difficult for us to embrace, but it's not difficult for us to appreciate that you love us and you call us in Christ and that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Bring comfort to your people. And for anyone here this morning who feels questioned or doubt or anxiety, I pray that you'd give them uh, the courage to come and talk to me or Father Peter or someone else. And may you lead them to the assurance that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.